It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Here's the thing. We got a message in yesterday uh, towards the end of the show. And we're having to think about it. They just announced in the UK that Sainsbury's is going to close on St. Stephen's Day, or Boxing Day, as they call it over there. And this person who contacted us yesterday was wondering, would grocery retailers in Ireland take their lead from the UK and close on the 26th of December to give their staff a well-deserved break following the 18 months of chaos they've endured. Why does it come up? It comes up because it's, well, happening in the UK, but because it's 101, listen to me, it's 101 days to Christmas. Fiona nearly fell over this morning when I said it. It's 101 days to Christmas. So, have a think about it during the morning and we'll come back and forth to it. Do you think that all of the supermarkets, bars, say, the essential corner shops, should close on Stephen's Day? I know some of them do. I think Lidl or Aldi, one of the two, maybe both do. Some of the super values do, depending on who is running them. Uh, I'm not too sure if Dunn or Tesco's do close anyway on St. Stephen's Day. But do you think that all of the shops, all of the big supermarkets this year, should close on St. Stephen's Day? Big, talk, big talking point in the UK where Sainsbury's have announced they're going to close on Boxing Day. And of course, I've never understood anyway where we have to start sales at 6 o'clock on St. Stephen's this morning. Like, we're turning over for another hour's sleep at that stage, or at least another hour's sleep. What would you think, though? Let us know what you think. All the big supermarkets, should they close on St. Stephen's Day? 1850-715-996. Good morning. Whatever about supermarkets, and whatever about the staff working in supermarkets. We've had uh, Elaine Dunn on before from the Federation of Early Childhood Providers and Elaine took to her Twitter yesterday to, I think, 
ask us to to bring to people's attention a massive shortage of pages or places rather elaine good morning hi good morning what is the problem so the problem at the moment is we've seen in media over the last couple of weeks that parents are cannot get places and services and this is down to lack of staff we can't get staff so as we speak at the moment in full daycare services they're starting to close down rooms because we've no choice. We cannot get staff anywhere. And this is all stems to the lack of government investment over the last 11, 10, year, 10 or 11 years. We've been chronically underfunded for years. We do not have sustainability. Therefore, you can hear that parents are saying they can't get places for their babies. Mm-hmm. So baby rooms are shutting down because that's just not a viable part of the business at the moment. And it's so overregulated as well. It's very hard to run a baby room in services. There was so, a shortage of places even before the pandemic. How has the pandemic made it worse? Um, it, it just seems to have gotten an awful lot worse. And, you know, the birth rates as well are up and things like that. So we just don't have the places. And the other thing is you've got to remember a lot of services have closed down in the last two years and new services have not reopened. And this is going to continue to happen. I mean, I'm seeing it now, like people ringing me and saying, I can't keep this up, the stress and the strain. We can't get staff. We don't have sustainability. I can't do this anymore. I had a girl on to me last night saying it. I also had a provider on in Dublin who went to a college in Spain, hired four girls from a college in Spain, has brought them over to Dublin to work in her service and has taken on a house for them to live in. I mean, how is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's absolutely madness. Staffing crisis is here now today. I brought it to to our minister. I brought it to the department. Nobody is listening. We cannot get staff. We are scrambling for staff. We are losing degree-led people out into the workforce. They're leaving the sector. Why? Because we can't pay them the big wages that these people deserve. They deserve so much and we can't give it to them unless we keep hitting the parents for more fees. You know, as I said before, Mm. parents shouldn't have to take the hit. And and let's face it, and this is no blame to you, but a lot of the fees are already bordering on the unsustainable anyway. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. Parents can't take, and it's anymore. all beyond our yeah, it's beyond our control, and it's very sad to see the, the sector falling apart like this. You see it in other countries as well. You see it in the UK as well. But you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to funding, funding, funding. That's it. They yeah. need to listen. We need more funding so that we can sustain our businesses, keep our staff, pay them the correct wages. There is a wage scale there that was done in 2018. It was completely ignored. It's called the Mercer Pay Scale. It was put out there by Cran and NCN, mm. and it's a fabulous wage scale for the sector. It's a professional wage scale, and we have put it into our budget submission this year, and we really want the government to support this. Yeah. You were saying that, that the regulation is a huge problem as well. Yes, for for the baby rooms. Like I stopped doing babies like five years ago. We don't take children under the age of two. And what are the problems associated with it, Elaine? What are the extra things you need to do? Well, I don't know what they are now. At the time, it just wasn't a part of my a viable part of my business. So in my room, I could take eleven children into that room, actually children. You know, and I was taking three babies. So I stopped taking the three babies and then I just took out your children in the stand. So that makes it a viable part of my business. Yeah. Yeah. And the providers up and down the country are just, they can't get the staff. And that's because, is it because they can't offer enough wages? The staff aren't out there? What is, like, what is the key issue? um, 
I think what's happened is that they people have stopped. Um, I, I know that I've heard um, on, on the grapevine that they're they're in when they're in colleges and they're doing the, the childcare courses. They're just not coming back out to work in the sector. Yeah. They're going back and they're, they're staying and they're doing they're they're doing more. So they're going to do level seven and level eight. You know, and why would you come into a sector that can't afford to pay you a decent wage yeah. to ensure that you can get a mortgage? I mean, and that's the reality. I mean, even for me as a provider, providers also struggle to get mortgages because our businesses are not sustainable. Mm. You know, it's across, it's, and it's nationwide. It's not just in one section. We, we did a survey which showed that it was nationwide. Yeah. You know, the staffing crisis. Like, to listen to you say that, some might say, crikey, isn't childcare expensive enough? Are they not making enough money? So that's, mm. I think, some, that, that's a, a myth you've got to bust, I think. Well, and, and this is it. Like, so we've had funding for 10 or 11 years now. OK, that funding has only gone up by 7 percent in that time. Yet rents, everything else has gone up. You know, ESB, everything has gone up and food, everything. But this has not changed. And this is down to like when we get allocated a whole load of funding from the government, it goes to all different places before we get our cut. So it goes to all of the different departments. So if you hear that we're getting 600 million, that 600 million doesn't come to the providers. It goes to all of the departments that have been created over the last 10 or 11 years. Yeah. yeah. It sounds you know, like it's getting a very better start. It's, it's unworkable. It is an unworkable system now. And, you know, at the end of the day, providers are looking to take a stand because they, they just can't do it anymore. We, we really can't. And we don't want to let anybody down you know, and it's going to end up that parents are going to put their, their children out to child minders now and they won't be able to get crash places. And and that's it in a nutshell. You know, the, this sector is in crisis and nobody is listening. Mm. And we've tried and tried and tried every group out there that works for providers, staff, everybody. We're all saying the same thing. So why are the government not listening? Why are the department not listening? The questions need to go to them as to what they're going to do about the childcare sector. Okay. Elaine, thank you. You you state your case and state it well. Elaine Dunn is chair of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers and a chronic shortage of staff leading to a chronic shortage of places leading to effectively what she's saying an emergency in the provision of childcare 1850 715996 Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance CMIG.ie Cork's 96FM there's a thing happened at the was it this the Met Gala the other night? Emily Ratatowski uh, turned up. Um, as you know now, she is the darling of West Cork sport. Her dad is from West Cork, and she she's got plenty of money. She is sponsoring uh, one of the young basketball teams down there. We covered this during the summer. Fiona did it while I was away, and of course Sam Barry, who's the editor in chief of Glamour, and Emily. Met, as you do, at the uh, Met Gala. And Emily was dressed to the car colours, as you do, at the Met Gala. You know, as you do. I mean, you do. Of course you go to the Met Gala dressed in the car colours. Why wouldn't you? And, well, this is what happened. This is short and sweet. So I'm at the Met Gala with Bantry's sporting biggest supporter. That's true. It's me. Hello, is- everyone. <laughs> 
Yeah, you go. Sam Barry with Emily Ratatowski. They'd be delighted with that now down in West Cork. 1850-715-996. Ah, some of you are taking up the idea with regard to the supermarkets. This comes, and first of all, we got a message yesterday telling us that this was going to happen in the UK. We'd been watching it anyway. And Sainsbury's announced in the UK that they are now going to close on what they call Boxing Day. And the idea is, well, would you think that Tesco's and Super Value and Dunn's and Lidl and Aldi and Centra and the mall, should they all close here on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day, which is a Sunday this year? We get the holiday for it on the Monday. But should St. Stephen's Day, should they close on the Sunday? Uh, some of them do, some of them don't, I think. What do you think? Can we sense any sense of how you'd feel about that? Um, a lot of people say, well, why anyway should they need to be open in the first place? Why on earth does Tesco's food hall and Dunn's food market and, and soup, why do they need to be open on Stevens's morning first thing anyway? Like, should you, did you nearly, seriously, did you not buy enough bread and milk on Christmas Eve, for goodness sake? Enough to feed a small army. Erin says every shop should be shut on St. Stephen's Day. Supermarkets or small grocery shops open for a half day or less if they wish. And then the sales shouldn't start until at least the 28th. I'd like your thoughts on that during the morning. Should we follow the lead of uh, Sainsbury's in the UK? Big day today in Leinster House. They're back from the convention centre, the TDs, uh, for the first day of the new Doyle session. And it will be dominated, not by what they'd like it to be dominated by, but it will be dominated by a vote of no confidence or attempted vote of no confidence in Simon Covey, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, all stemming from the Zappone Gate affair. And Sinn Féin are tabling a motion of no confidence. I'm joined by Deputy Political Editor of the Examiner, uh, Elaine Lachlan. Elaine, there's no hope in hell this will get passed, is there? Good morning. Good morning. No, there really isn't. But at the same time... A motion of no confidence is the last thing any government wants, never mind on their first day back from the summer recess. Yeah. You know, the summer break is usually a time for politicians to get a week or two space away from Leinster House and also space away from their constituency because when they do go back to their constituencies a lot of the time for the first few weeks certainly they catch up on all the local issues and their clinics and whatnot and then they might take a week or two actual break before coming back hopefully rebooted, refreshed and ready to go. Mm. But this summer especially the government parties and particularly Fine Gael, have just been dogged by this controversy around the short-lived appointment of Catherine Zappone that they really haven't got that headspace away from things mm. and they're coming straight back into this motion of no confidence. As you said, it's not going to succeed um, and we expect that the government will actually put down a counter motion of confidence in mm. Simon Coveney and Sinn Féin's motion will fall. Um but it's not exactly how you want to be starting off a fresh term yeah. in Leinster House as a government. Michael Martin has warned that any TD voting against Simon Coveney will be disciplined. That can't be going down too well in the ranks of Fianna Fáil. No, especially when Fianna Fáil see it as a Fine Gael issue, a Fine Gael problem and a Fine Gael controversy, which they have been dragged into purely because they're in government with them. And we did see a number of... Uh, w- what are usually outspoken TDs, I have to say, come out? Uh, we had John McGuinness last week 
claimed that he didn't know which way he would vote uh, in the ballot. And we also had Mark McSharry writing to colleagues last night asking and questioning why it hadn't happened already. But he had asked for a meeting um, about the vote ahead of the vote today. Um, so if there is this issue that people really don't want to vote for this, mm. but they have to because yeah. the whip is being imposed. And the Taoiseach has said that anyone who breaks that will be out of the party effectively for six months. <laughs> will it be over then, Elaine? Like, will it go to bed when it's defeated tonight? Well, that's what the government will be hoping for. They're hoping that this will draw a line under in the sand um, and we can get on with everything else that the government want to get on with. But I would have told you at the start of the summer uh, that this it, it was it, the government were fortunate in the sense that this controversy landed on them at the start of the summer and they would have had the breathing space to get over it. And by the time the doll returned, it would have been done and dusted and forgotten about. Mm. And here we are, mid-September, still talking about Catherine Zappone, still talking about Simon Coveney, mm. and we have this motion. So it does seem like the controversy that, that refuses to go away. And, and that's probably partly down to Fine Gael and the way that they have drip-fed out yeah. information, whether it was texts from Leo Varadkar, then we had a tranche of correspondence released by the departments. Yeah. Um, well, it's been and a textbook then, example of how not to manage a situation. Uh, Elaine, we also have uh, um, Tony Houlihan coming before an Oireachtas committee this morning and he's been making noises in the last 24 hours that people didn't like hearing that we cannot rule out the prospect of more restrictions should Delta not come under control as we hope it will come under control. Will he be pushed further on that today? Yes, um, as you said, Tony Holan and a number of public health experts are expected to update the the health committee this morning, and that's kicking off at half nine. But he and some of his other uh, colleagues submitted opening statements to that committee last night. Tony Holan saying that the Delta variant, even with vaccination, we probably won't be able to get a handle on it fully. Um, and that measures may be needed. He, he used the word measure as, as opposed to restriction. Mm. But I think when, when we're talking about this, we can only guess that he is talking about reimposing some sort of restrictions mm -hmm. on people. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen. I don't want to overly worry people yeah. here. Yeah. But it, he says it's still on the table and we still have to think about it. Of course, that's kind of at odds with what the government have been saying in recent well, weeks. The next, you the know, next step is Monday week, which is the 20th of September. And then we have until the 22nd of October. And hopefully the the daily patterns and the weekly patterns of cases should start to come under control by then. So is he just sounding a warning rather than saying you're going to have to you're going to have to do things here? Well, on top of that, he does uh, he does go back to the numbers of cases in fully vaccinated elderly people mm -hmm. in nursing homes. And actually, Karina Butler as well of NIAC mentions that, the fact that it does seem to be that the vaccination amongst that older at-risk group is waning and waning well, nice maybe quicker you. than they had oh, anticipated no, no, no. or yeah. hoped. Um, so that'll be one to watch out for yeah. because at the moment, although we have high cases yeah. and new cases every day, Thankfully, the numbers in ICU and the numbers in hospital have remained yeah. relatively stable. 
But if it does start to creep into that older at-risk yeah. uh, cohort, we could see those numbers spiralling again or but certainly increasing, and that's not what we want. Which, of course, it'll bring the whole debate about booster vaccines right into the headlines again. Listen, Elaine, I'll leave you there. The office is getting busy. Thank you very much. That's Elaine Lockton. She's a deputy political editor with The Examiner joining us from Leinster House, where the Doyle resumes today. The first bit of business will be uh, that motion of no confidence in Simon Coveney. And to be quite honest with you, it will go nowhere. It will go nowhere. They don't have the numbers. Sinn Féin don't have the numbers to push it through. What will happen is they will put it before the House uh, and they'll make noise about it as they do. And then the government will put a counter motion expressing confidence in Simon Coveney. They will have the numbers. They will win that. And that will be the holy all of it. Whether you agree that that's how it should be is a matter for yourself. But 1850-715-996. Just on the grocers and the shops. Yeah, Christmas Day is the... Yeah, Christmas Day is the Saturday. Stevens's Day is the Sunday this year. Kate says, I'd be delighted to see them close. Some of the staff will be working up to 10 o'clock Christmas Eve. Listener says, they always did it till we became a 24-hour world. Then they copied the UK. Better make sure I have lunches ready for the 26th for the non-retail workers who don't get to celebrate occasions because shutting down machines costs more than paying staff to work. 1850-715-996. Bev says... The same people that say shops should be closed are the same people that are in the same shops first thing Stephen's morning. Luckily, where I work, we're closed in Stephen's day, but the queue outside the following day is always crazy. Bev, I couldn't agree with you more. The very people who say, oh, the shops shouldn't be open at all, Steve. They'll be the ones that'll be there. They'll be the ones that'll be there. We love to get your WhatsApp Voice messages. The uh, biggest day for us, actually, in terms of those recently, was the 9-11 memories last Friday. We got loads of them in on WhatsApp. Remember, if you don't have time to write up a long message or you don't have time to take a call or you'd be a bit nervous about taking a call, why, I don't know, just pop it into a voice message and send it off to us at 83 396 96 96, as Paul has done about the shortage of crash places and the shortage of staff in childcare. Professional wage scale for childcare. Most childcare and creche owners only pay their staff about 10 euros an hour and don't pay them any more. These people have to do FETAC level 8 to gain a job in childcare. And they're looking after your children, my children and everyone else's children and they're being paid peanuts by the owners. Yeah, Paul, thank you for that. The owners would say that they don't make the big money despite the high costs because of things like insurance, staff, rent, health and safety, you name it. They don't make the money that you think they're making through the big fees. But thank you for that. Anyone else have a comment on WhatsApp voice message 083 396 96 96. New study says that lower income and female cancer patients are more vulnerable to higher levels of COVID-19 stress. This was an interesting piece of research uh, recently compiled. Um, to- joined by Dr. Aileen Murphy, who carried out the research, and Roberta Horgan, who's Vice Chair of Lynch Syndrome Ireland. And I'll find out more about that in just a sec. But I'll start with you, Dr. Murphy. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. The idea behind this research, what was it? So this research we've been conducting myself um, with my colleague, Dr. Anne Kirby, in the Department of Economics at Cork University Business School, 
in collaboration with Dr. Francis Drummond from Breakthrough Cancer Research, is funded by the MSD Oncology uh, Global Programme. And essentially the motivation for behind it was that we recognise that COVID-19, while it represents a significant threat to all of us, particularly cancer patients and survivors because of their weakened immune systems, um, were particularly susceptible. So what we did was we examined published studies from uh, all around the world that investigated these side effects because, of course, like uh, many groups, cancer patients were told to uh, restrict their movements, mm. avoid um, social situations, and that, that awful word we had, cocoon, at home. And while this was successful, perhaps in preventing the transmission of COVID-19 amongst this group, it did come with um, severe side effects and arising from that and the restrictions on them from a social and psychological perspective. So if we think about the environment um, that we've experienced in the last 18 months, we've had national guidelines, public health guidelines, mm. and different institutions had different guidelines that were restricting movement of people. And of course, this translated then as well into restricting uh, the, how care was delivered, mm. changes in how care was delivered, cancellations, delays. Yeah. And all of that then can manifest and has adverse effects. And being told to, to stay at home, you know, introduces fear and uncertainty to people yeah. um, having their cancer treatment or diagnosis, um, consultations moved to online or maybe cancelled altogether kind of manifest itself then in feelings of loneliness, isolation, anxiety, and, and having a mental health burden. Which, of course, if you've had to deal with cancer at the same time, that, that doesn't help. Exactly. And, and how did the low-income side of it add to that then? So what we saw was that there was risk factors associated with um, these social and psychological outcomes. And the risk factors tended to be uh, those who are female, perhaps those who are unemployed, from a, la a lower economic background. So we need to just take into context that these were international studies and these are trends that, that we were seeing. Mm. And part of the reason or the trends that we experienced witness for this was that there was fear. And in, for a lot of people, the fear of COVID actually was outweighing the fear of cancer, which wow. of course is itself it's a significant thing. And you know, there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, you know, it, it could be down to health liter literacy, but also, if we think about the areas that were most affected um, geographically, there could be issues around how healthcare services were being organised in those countries, the general economic environment. And if we think about people perhaps who are reliant on using public transport to get mm. to their appointments, you know, if, if there's reduced public transport or, um, you know, the, the, yeah. if, if so certainly it wasn't the, reduced, the more you, you know, depend and those, uh, the more you depend on services, uh, the, the more you seem to have have suffered here. Bring in Roberta Horgan at this stage, the vice chair of Lynch syndrome. Now, Roberta, forgive me, I understand that Lynch syndrome is a form of cancer, but maybe you'd explain it, it more for me. Good morning. Good morning, and thanks so much for having me on the show. It's, it's wonderful to get an opportunity to raise awareness of Lynch syndrome, and I think it's very timely considering that. Everyone is very focused on health and especially cancer services at the yeah. moment. So Lynch syndrome, it, it's not a form of cancer in itself. It's okay. a genetic predisposition that gives you a higher risk of developing many types of cancer and at much younger ages than generally seen in the population. Right. Um, so, so to be a bit like the BRCA like, gene for breast cancer, would it be a bit like that? It is. It, it, you can put them in the same category, although I believe Lynch syndrome is actually more common than BRCA, even though most people have never heard of it. Right. Um, so if you have Lynch syndrome, your each of your children, your siblings have a 50% chance of also having it. So you have a condition that has, you know, that the, the chance to 
create a lot of, you know, high risk for cancers and not just in the individual, but also in their wider family. So I think it shows that people with Lynch syndrome and BRCA and other mutations that give a higher predisposition to developing cancer were disproportionately affected during the pandemic regards COVID services. Because when we think of cancer screening, I think everyone was aware, they heard that, you know, endoscopy wasn't going ahead. There was no colonoscopies. You know, there's very limited services in a lot of cancer care areas. Like would you Robert, would you have to get regularly checked now to see that something isn't developing? Is that the case? Where it probably gets slightly confusing. Um, I I have a condition called serrated polyposis syndrome. It's it's kind of along in the same categories. Um, so just like Lynch syndrome, I have a very high risk of developing bowel cancer, and I require um, regular screening. So every twelve months, sometimes twice in a year. I have to have a colonoscopy to look for these lesions, find them and remove them to kind of, you know, limit my risk of, of cancer. So any disruption to that screening service, because in fact, it's not just screening, it's therapeutic, it's surveillance, it's what's keeping me healthy at the moment. So any disruption to that, any gap in care leaves me at a very high risk of developing bowel cancer and not just that. But sticking to a screening schedule like that for someone like me and for people with Lynch syndrome that are also having to deal with gynecological checks and other checks for other organs that they can develop cancer in, it is our only safety net. And when you're two months off your yearly screening, a lot of nerves build up and yeah. um, you're grateful to have it gone, but it brings a lot of anxiety. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but you know, I the fear of what... Anxiety. We, yes, scanxiety is the real thing. It, it's a sense of, of stress and distress that people feel around the time of their annual or biannual screenings because it's quite invasive, quite emotional. You're worried about what will be found. You're very aware that you're only ever one scan or test or scope away sure. from possibly life-changing news. But you take comfort in the fact that you have this incredible service set up designed to be your safety net that sure. is designed to reduce your risk and to find, more importantly, to find any cancers early. And Roberta, did you treated. miss out on scans because of COVID? I was very lucky that I had my annual colonoscopy in the January of 2020. Now, during that scope, they found um, six new lesions, one that was quite large and had to be removed in pieces. So guidelines require follow-up within three to six months. And that's when COVID hit. Oh. And I was counting down the months, very aware that I need to have this checked and, and done within this time frame if I'm going to, you know, st- stay ahead of the game of cancer, so to speak. And then sure enough, as the time approached, I, I just got a text message that said, unfortunately, due to COVID, your colonoscopy is going to be delayed. I think that's the, the first time I was ever afraid and fearful of my diagnosis because my safety net was taken away from me, along with so many other people. And... I think Dr. Murphy hit on a lot of points there as well. You know, people were affected differently geographically as well. Like I live in the Midlands. A lot of my screening takes place in Galway and some in Dublin. And when things were starting to open back up, I was having a lot of appointments come up at one time that I had to, you know, hop on, you know, two or three buses or a train. And it's very daunting because you're hearing this rhetoric the whole way throughout this pandemic from from the public in general that, you know, people like me wouldn't fare well if we got it and to stay at home. And unfortunately, not everyone can stay at home. I've I've had no choice but to work throughout the pandemic. So I'm listening to a lot of 
oh, yeah, we hear so many people die today, but what we heard they had underlying conditions and it's almost like you feel you're dispensable and you think because of that, maybe people won't take as much care around you as they would a healthy-bodied person. It seems more acceptable that if if you get sick with COVID, well, that's kind of okay because you had something wrong with you anyway. And I think for... I was still lucky in the sense that I suppose I was able to work. So I had that social interaction with people. But I know a lot of people in the Lynch Centre community that are in active treatment at the moment or are recovering from treatment and are immunosuppressed that had no choice but to stay at home. We've also had people that have undergone cancer surgeries, prophylactic or therapeutic, that were trying to recover at home and probably deal with childcare and the other day-to-day things without... Mm. Having sounds sounds awfully stressful. They had no one. We're told, don't let anyone into your house. Limit who you're seeing. And we knew it had to be that way. But we really felt like they were almost like we were this secret community. Yeah. You know, these group of very high risk people dealing with a lot of complex issues that were literally just kind of the door was closed on us during the pandemic and we had no idea when it was going to be opened again. And I think that was another thing that caused a lot of distress for the community was the clear lack of communication. We understood services couldn't run as normal, but it would have been nice to, you know, instead of just hearing your scan, your procedure, your scope is cancelled. Yeah. We don't know when. It would be nice to hear. Roberta, did you you get the, did you get the treatment that you, uh, there's a little bit I, of it. I did. For my colonoscopy, I was lucky. I only had, like, I think it was a six-week delay. Um, but but that was a very long six weeks for me, living with the condition I have. Yeah. And I also had, I think, I think it was a 16-month delay in ultrasounds for a growth to my neck as well. Right. And when I finally got that ultrasound, was greeted with, you need a biopsy straight away. So it's like, how much is this delay going to cost me? How stressful and it is, is it's extremely stressful and like I said we do feel like this high risk community people with Lynch syndrome or serrated polyposis or Baraka that we are this kind of almost secret community in the public eyes that when people think of of services and people are relying on them everyone requires services but not equally yeah. like when people hear of Oh, screen and scopes. To so think of an average risk person, you know, at the age of 65 being invited for the first colonoscopy, they're not thinking of someone with Lynch syndrome or serrated polyposis. No. That is essentially equivalent to our lifeline. We, we, we tend not to think of these things because they're not in, in our own lives. But when, when it's put in front of us, like you have, it's, it's very enlightening and, and disturbing. And, and thank you for doing that, Roberta. Come back to Dr. Murphy for a second. Uh, Aileen, now that you have this research and these findings, just lastly, like what's going to happen? with it? Where's it going to go? What's it going to be used for? Okay, so um, our, our first step is we have an event tomorrow um, that people can still uh, register for, where essentially we're going to bring our findings to um, a very distinguished panel of, of uh, speakers, including Roberta and other um, patient advocates. We have clinicians like Professor Seamus O'Reilly, Professor Colin Bradley, Dr. Derek Power. We represent the National Cancer Registry, National Can- Cancer Control Programme, and, and a range of others where we're going to disseminate our research findings and we're going to get their reflection. So one of, I suppose, the the disappointing perspective um, from a regional level was that there was no Irish studies included um, in the, the studies that we've looked at. And it's about timing, really. It's, it's mainly wave, wave one studies. Um, so we only looked at studies published up until March 2021. Mm. We know there is some Irish reports and white papers and lots of experiences and, and stories about the Irish um, experience. So we're hoping to share 
um, and to, to glean some of those okay. at our event tomorrow. And, and, and how can people so, sign up for that event if they want to do so? Is it, I take it, is it free? Is it open to the public? Yes, it's, it's a free online event um, for anyone to attend. So if people go to cubsucc.com and to the events page there, there's a, you can click onto the registration page okay. and okay. A, a link will be sent. Okay, listen, I'll leave it there with you both for today. Thank you very much. Cubsucc.com is where you can find that seminar if you're interested. That's Dr. Aileen Murphy, who carried out or was involved in carrying out the research, and Roberta Horgan, Vice Chair of Lynch Syndrome Ireland. And I think Roberta has painted a picture of what it must have been like in mid-pandemic to have this risk hanging over you, that if you miss a scan or miss a, a procedure, that the risk, the risk is there, you'll develop a cancer and develop it quickly. And that must have been so scary for people like Roberta over the last 18 months. 1850 Opinion line on Corks 96 FM with McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See mig.ie. Fully focus, what you mean? Got my eyes on the prize, that's me. Manchester City are the champions. Number one, that's top of the league. The best football league in the world is right here. Firmino with the flick. Salah! Fernandez, he's going to go for goal. Oh, what a goal. The Premier League. Powered by Top Sport. Join me, Trevor Welch, exclusively online at 96fm.ie. Tune in Saturdays as we ramp up the excitement for the day's biggest games. We'll bring you pre-match analysis, live commentary, and in-depth interviews with some legends of the sport. The Premier League Live with Now. Join in the experience with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Listen every Saturday exclusively online at 96fm.ie or download the Cork's 96fm app. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96fm. So, during the height of the restrictions and the lockdown, the city centres were deserted. Ghost towns. I remember driving in here early in the mornings in, in the first lockdown and like anything short of tumbleweed was was all we were short of in the city centre. Now with the subsequent lockdowns it was a little less so. But in the return to work in September you can see the contrast even if we didn't observe the last lockdown very well, the contrast is still there. Town is much busier now. It really did devastate the cities. And in particular, it emptied them of young people because young people went off home. They stayed at home to work. They stayed at home to study. They shopped from home. So how do you now get them back into the city Again, Kieran Deneen's been writing about this in, in the Echo. Kieran, good morning to you. And people were staying at home in their droves because it was safer and they could conduct meetings online and work online and shop online. But now we need to get them back into the cities. So how do we do that? Well, I, I suppose there's a couple of different factors in it, PJ. The main the main one, of course, is uh, is housing and um, you know, it's been an, an important couple of weeks with the Housing for All plan um, coming out and, and trying to give us some sort of indication of where the government is going to take us um, in, in terms of providing housing uh, in our city centres. Um, but of course, this isn't a new thing. Um, the Ireland 2040 plan 
uh, picked out cities like Waterford and Cork to increase pretty drastically over the next 20 or 30 years, probably increasing the population of the city centre by about 50%. Mm. So if you have a look at um, the South Docks and the North Docks in Cork in particular, you know, the, the, these are areas that are, they're looking to zone per, particularly for um, for housing. And, you know, we, we probably need to prioritise apartments and spaces for young people to live in because if you have a look at trends kind of around Europe and really a, a, across the world, um, you know, there there is higher density um, uh, living in cities yeah. where young people um, are, are attracted to most. And at the moment, I suppose, in, in terms of Cork, uh, we we don't have that. We probably have more urban sprawl and commuter yeah. towns shifted, shifted around um, parts of the city. You know your likes of your Carrick Lines and your Ballincollegs, your Carrick Tools. Um, and and the question is is what happens if um, in the long term uh, we'll say the established working professionals who usually travel into the city if they decide to work from home all the time and office spaces become um, emptied or relatively emptied and footfall decreases on the streets. Yeah. Um, who is going to actually populate our city centres? Yeah. Who's going to support the businesses in here? Exactly. And I think you 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 mentioned online shopping there a minute ago, um, PJ, and that is probably uh, another um, uh, aspect of the last 18 months that we've really become all accustomed to uh, the amount of times I, I know you've got uh, kind of ch- children my age. I can imagine the amount of times the DHL man was dropping off parcels at your door. I honestly during, thought um, that my daughter was seeing the courier at one point. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's actually having an impact obviously on our, on our main streets as well. And, you know, um, SMEs and businesses are, yeah. are you know, who, who didn't have the kind of digital platform, um, to be able to sell their product online suffered massively um, during during the pandemic, and as a result, um, you, you know we have seen the likes of um, you know Boohoo coming in, and I think they bought up um, uh, Topman, didn't they? And you know, obviously Debenhams had closed beforehand, um, but you know we now have kind of large buildings around the city. Um, you know that are that are kind of empty. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Is is it time to look maybe Kieran at repurposing? office buildings do you know yeah yeah I mean this is this is a good question yeah I mean this is a good question and even if we there's a, there's been a lot of conversation around we'll say the above um, shop floor living and you know this is again was a you know pretty normal concept in this country at one stage and around the rest of the world as well where you have your your kind of restaurant or your shop and above that um, there was a couple of uh, of apartments and um, again, th- thankfully, like we, we're having a, a better discussion around that, and we're, we're we're looking to see what we can do there. But that won't obviously solve mm. everything. Um, the interesting thing is, is that I think the we'll say the large companies and innovation and business is actually going to drive this trend. So if they if they think uh, PJ that they could actually save money by um, reducing their office spaces and getting their workers to work. Yeah. two or three days from home and, and have a smaller office, yeah. um, then obviously they're going to vacate these buildings and move to a smaller premises. But who goes into these buildings? So as again, that is the question Given that you all raised. the things that are happening, was it a mistake to open and encourage the opening of so many coffee shops and restaurants and small dining operations? If there's no living in here or visiting in here, they won't do very well, will they? 
Well, I, I suppose there is there is a caveat to all of this, and um, we have been we have had pandemics before, and it was if we go back a hundred years ago to the last pandemic around you know the nineteen kind of eighteen nineteen nineteen yeah, what uh, what 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 happened? What happened uh, in the nineteen twenties? What's the other name given to the nineteen twenties? It is the Roaring Twenties. So, in fact, after a um, a pandemic, particularly in the states, um, you know, you come back. They they drastically came back, yeah. and you know, they have been written off uh, many different occasions. I think even if we look at um, the commemorations of nine eleven last week. I mean, you know, New York uh, for a period was written off due to a terrorist attack and yet that, that bounced yes. back as well. So cities have this great bounce back ability, I suppose you could yes. say. Um, and I think if you if you consider what, what we call central business districts, which are these large hubs that attract wealth of employment um, and innovation and prosperity and all of this. Mm. We probably only have one in Ireland at the moment, and that would be seen as Dublin, just because Cork, and again, you know, we'll say there is considerable commuting time for people that live in Cork, but at the end, it's possibly nothing compared to some people who might live in, we'll say, Wexford, who travel into to yeah. Dublin every day. And there have been planning decisions over the years where they actually built um, communities. I think Gory was an example yeah. um, where there were literally hundreds of houses and those everyone who lived yeah. in those houses we, we, we don't want, the, we don't want Cork to be sprawling out quite as, as big in Dublin though, taking over half a county Mead or anything like that. Here, I'm going to leave it for, there for today for no reason other than time but it's an interesting discussion of where our city goes post-pandemic. Thank you for that. I do like the idea of the Roaring Twenties and the reminder of the Roaring Twenties. I've got a friend who constantly says to me he works in retail project management, that we are going to the economy is going to come back like a runaway train I just hope he's right Can we just talk The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now for motor, home, business farm, life and health insurance CMIG.ie The lines are live And we're ready to talk Can we just talk Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. We had an interesting call there before the news on various unsolved murders and missing persons cases. And is there any progress? And it ties in with a story that's in the news this morning, very, very prominent in the news this morning, which younger listeners might not remember, but I'm going to go through it in a little while, and that is the exhumation of a body in Kerry yesterday, uh, the body of a baby known only and ever owned only as Baby John. Nobody knows who his father or mother ever were. Nobody knows. He was, but he was exhumed yesterday as part of uh, an ongoing investigation Someone called up there wondering about various cases of murders and missing persons. I'll read that in a little while. 1850-715-996. Also, with 101 days to Christmas. Yes, don't be getting too shocked now. 101 days to Christmas. We were commenting earlier on about the decision in the UK. Sainsbury's in the UK have announced that they're going to close now on Stephen's Day or Boxing Day as they call it over there and just wondering some do some don't particularly the likes of Super Value which are all franchise stores some Super Value shops close some don't 
some duns. I think duns. Do duns close on St. Stephen's Day? It's it's kind of open to them to do what they want to do on St. Stephen's Day. Do you think that the big supermarkets should close on St. Stephen's Day this year? It's a Sunday. And do you think that, you know, to, to thank the staff for the work that they've done, the tireless work that they've done to keep us all supplied during the pandemic, that they should get St. Stephen's Day off as well as Christmas Day? I want to know what you think about that. Uh, 1850 715 I've spoken in the past with Amy Barrett. Um, Amy's father was jailed um, for abuse. She told her story. She told it to me very early on after the trial. And uh, in, in latter years, I've spoken to Amy about the fact that after her case was over, after the case was over, Dad was punished. But she was left to fend pretty much for herself. And that seems to be the thing with victims of abuse. That their abuser, all going well, gets jailed for what they did to them or punished for what they did to them. And then they are left pretty much to fend for themselves. And, and Amy has now joined forces with a number of other women to do something about that, or at least to, to try to. Good to speak with you again, Amy. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. And how are you keeping these days? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, can't complain. Good. Now, the last time, sum it up for us. The last time we spoke, you kind of said, look, you know, Dad got punished and and that's fine. But you were left pretty much to fend for yourself. I was, I suppose. Like I had said before, that the support that we got in the court and even the whole reporting to the guards, everything was just really good. But unfortunately, not every victim's experience is as good as as ours was. And then after the court case, I just felt like, why can't the care just continue on after? It's like you're just dropped. I felt dropped. I felt like, okay, I have to find my own way now, find my own counselling. It just and then as well, after the court case, you're left with dealing whatever has come back up to the surface for you. Yeah. And that's stressful enough in itself, besides having to go and find a counsellor for yourself at a low cost as well, because not everyone can afford that 50 to 70 euros per session. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like you said, and you've said it before, you get great support. You at least got great support during the court case, yeah. and for which you'll forever be grateful. But, but then it's over and you've got to deal with the aftermath. And, and there's nothing there. Yeah. You've got to find. So you've joined forces with Senator Marie Sherlock. Yeah, I mean, Marie has been in touch with me um, a few times anyway over this um, campaign that I started and she's very supportive of it. You know, she's very understanding, empathetic, the whole lot. She seems like genuine enough that she really wants to help us. So we were chatting the other day and she came up with this idea. Look, first, we need to highlight that there's a real problem here and how do we do that? Because I'm just one victim of my, with my story of the system, which is a positive one, which is good. Mm. But there are other victims that um, they're not so positive and we need to, we need to get those stories in. And thankfully she's gotten a few already and, and I've received a few and sent them on to her as well. Mm. Remind so, me again um, how long it is, Amy, since the case. Oh, um, I think it was now, 2017. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's almost four years now. I think right. he'd be four years now this November okay. in prison. Yeah, and that's for you four years dealing with 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 the aftermath, and and that isn't easy and hasn't been easy for you. You got counselling, no. but you had to get it yourself. 
I did. Yeah, I had to do a little bit of rooting around myself. Like I said, I found Kushkeem, which is a low cost counselling service. But unfortunately, that's only available in certain counties down around the south of Ireland. It's not available on the other parts of Ireland. But then there, I'm sure there are other schemes in different parts of the country. And that's another issue that I have as well, that there's there's an awful lot of like misinformation out there. Like victims are not aware that the rape crisis centres will provide counselling. Yeah. Um, it, it's very frustrating for them. Yeah. I know you, you were helped very much by, by Mary Crilly uh, throughout the whole process. And she's still there for you, I guess, if you need her at the end of the phone. Oh, but, she but is. You, know, like, all, yeah, you, and you, you need a factory turning out Mary Crilly's, don't you? And that's what I was going to say to you, that if we had Mary Crilly's in every part of the country, then there would we wouldn't have these problems. Yeah. You know, she's a force to be reckoned with. She'll get what's needed for a victim like she really is. Yeah. And I think the the, the 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 argument is, look, everything that you needed and you've never stopped being grateful for it was there for you before while the case was going on. You got everything you needed. Could we not just have, some, have something in place afterwards? Yeah, and I mean, I've like you should see some of the responses that I get from the the three different departments that are involved in this, and it's basically the same thing, just stating the obvious. Oh well, we have the rape crisis centres, which are funded by um, Roger O'Gorman's department, and we have the National Counselling Service. They're just telling me what I already know, and yeah. it's grand, you know, to say that we have these services, but when they're clearly not working properly, and this problem of waiting lists has been going on for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I mean, if if the government could just understand how important that um, a counsellor, like what they can, the impact they can have on a victim's life, yes. you know, maybe they might, you know, turn if they just paid them a wage, then these counsellors will be available. Isn't it amazing like that? If you have money, you will get your counsellor in the next few weeks. Yeah. But if you don't have money, you're going on a long waiting list. Yeah, yeah. And would I be right in saying that the need of counselling is changed even after a court case because the outcome, well, that puts you in a whole different mindset and you need to start again and maybe work through, you might need 10, 20 sessions to work through the the trauma because that's another trauma, a court case. Yeah, it is, of course, and especially if you don't get the outcome that you wanted. Mm. You know, you're dealing with all of that as well as everything you've gone through. And I mean, some victims, they might only need a few months and some might need many years. Yeah. So there's no way of telling until until they start that course of treatment. Yeah, okay. If you make any progress, come back to us. If there's anything we can do to help you make progress, uh, you know where we are always, Amy. Okay, thanks for letting me talk on your PJ. And if anybody it. wants to get in touch with you, can they do that? I'm on Facebook, yeah, but also if anybody wants, any victims out there that are listening now, I mean, it's totally confidential. They don't have to sign their name to their story. They can just email Marie. Um, it's marie at mariesherlock.ie and, or they can phone her if they want, if that's easier. It's okay. 087-992-8608. Okay, okay. And there's another, uh, there's an email as well, t- timberidge7 at yahoo.com. Yeah. All right. That's my them. one if they prefer to get in touch. I'll yeah. give those out again. Amy, thank you. Always good to speak to you on the opinion line and uh, good luck in your continued recovery from the ordeal that you went through. So if you need to contact Marie Sherlock, she's the senator de- dealing with this. She's Labour, isn't she, I think? Uh, Marie at mariesherlock.ie.
you can call her 087-9928-608-087-9928-608 or if you're someone who's dealing with the recovery from something you went through or just needs to reach out to someone to talk to who, who knows where you are, knows what you're going through, Timberidge, T-I-M-B-E-R-I-D-G-E-7 at yahoo.com. Timberidge, T-I-M-B-E-R-I-D-G-E-7, the number 7, at yahoo.com, 1850-715-996. We were talking yesterday with John about his daughter's situation. There is a new app, uh, TFI Go, where you can effectively just buy bus tickets from Transport for Ireland. So you can buy a whole clatter of bus tickets and store them on your phone. And then when you get on the bus, you open up a ticket, you show it to the bus driver and away with you onto the bus. Now, John's daughter had this app on her phone and had bought her tickets. But she got on a bus recently, more than twice, I think, she got on a bus, and the driver knew nothing about it. Now, one bus driver was kind enough to let her on and say, look, it's not, my, it's not your fault. Go ahead. The other, well, she was lucky she'd cash with her. But she, her dad was on with me yesterday, like, if this is out there, that you can actually buy bus tickets, why didn't the driver seem to know about it? We got on to bus Aaron to see if we get a statement to see what was going on. And I'll tell you what they told us next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. So as I said to you, John got on to us yesterday about his daughter. She put this new TFI Go app on her, on her phone, got bought some tickets, you buy a bunch of tickets and you buy them at the same price as you use a leap card, which is which is a great incentive to, to, to buy your tickets. But when she got on the bus, the, the driver seemed to have no idea what was going on at all. So we got it onto Bus Aaron, who told us in a rather a long comment, since 26th August 2021, customers can buy adult and student single and 10 journey tickets, we know that, using the TFI app. We know that. And it's on all Cork City and County routes. We know that too. Here's the next bit. All Bus Aaron staff were advised about this new app through information booklets and information circulated via our internal website, including an informative video for staff members to view. Notices were also put up in Bus Aaron depots. We're sorry to learn about difficulties experienced using the app on our services and apologise for inconvenience calls to this customer. We will notify our drivers and staff again about this new app. It's possible the error arose from a staff member who may have been on leave when the app was introduced a little over a fortnight ago. Bus Aaron's customer care helpline is available, etc., etc. It really helps if people can report difficulties directly to customer care so we can work straight away to resolve them or fully investigate and follow up. That last bit, it's kind of, we wish it hadn't gone to the radio. But I wonder, would we get that much info? So, they told the drivers in information, in leaflets, etc. Can I just throw something out here that might be a very simple idea to avoid the fact and look, it happens, but to avoid the fact that a driver might have been in holidays or away or sick or just off on the day they put out the memo. To avoid that couldn't you just put a sticker in all of the cabs of all the buses so the driver knows that some people might come up with this new TFI Go app and put up a sticker and say TFI Go app accepted here? Like, that would be, would that be too simple 
Would you need a PhD to come up with something like that? Because I did it in 30 seconds? Put a sticker in the cab. But thank you for the response. 1850-715-996. Now, there's a very interesting survey has come out. It's, it's a survey that says more than a third of people do not think that those with disabilities have equal rights. In fact, 40% say there's not enough sport for decision-making for people with disability. And 75% favour stronger laws to better safeguard people with disability. Now, if you have someone with a disability in your life, as I have, that's a very encouraging set of findings. It's unfortunate that we would live in a society in 2021 where you have to have a survey like that. But let's go to Patricia Richard Clark, the chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland, who joins me on the phone. Patricia, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Uh, it's unfortunate we would have to check this kind of feeling out in 2021, but I'm glad to see that there's the level of awareness out there that is there. Uh, well, we're. Um, I, I think maybe the, the survey indicates a higher level of awareness than there actually is in practice, actually. Really? Uh, and there actually is in practice in terms of respecting people living with a disability uh, and, their, and their rights. It also very clearly highlights, of course, uh, that the need to progress adult safeguarding legislation to protect people who may be at risk of abuse, explo- exploitation and neglect. And people living with a disability are very prone to uh, their decisions not being regarded, not being allowed to participate, uh, not allowing their choices to be made or, or exercised. So really important issues for us. And just to say that Ireland ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities in 2018. Mm-hmm. And we passed an Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act in 2015, which is not yet fully commenced, to deal with people whose decision making capacity is at issue or who people who lack capacity, decision making capacity. But in practice, we haven't actually put into practice, uh, you know, when we're interacting with people living with a disability, we don't give them the supports that we should, we don't assist them, Mm. and that leads to abusive practices. Mm. So really really important issues. Uh, Just also to say that people say living with a physical, sensory or intellectual disability have very different needs. And we expect people to communicate, say somebody that has a sensory uh, disability, we expect them to communicate to us. We don't assist them or support them. Uh, We make the demands on them. We should be, that's our obligation under the UN Convention, is to support and assist people. Yes, yes, but we don't seem to. Particularly in the area of children, Patricia, and I've said it here, September after September, I get calls from parents, distressed parents of children who, a simple thing, children with, with an additional need, trying to get a school place is one of them. And then when they get the school place, trying to get the bus or the taxi to school. And they're still here in September and they don't know whether they're getting their bus or their taxi. Now, that's not fair. And yet it happens year in, year out. Sure. Uh, but just to say, um, safeguarding Ireland... Uh, is you deal with adults. With but ad- adults. I and get that. I, I, yeah, and I, 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 that there's adults exactly. waiting for services around the country yes. too, but that's just an illustration Absolutely. that comes into me every year. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and just to say to you, we have children's safeguarding legislation but we have no adult safeguarding legislation and also we all heard of the Amy case or the Grace case or whatever when those 
young people reached the age of 18, they fell into a black hole. There was no framework to deal with them, to assess their risk, to assess their needs and to give them the service that they needed. And can I tell you, Patricia, that many, many parents of children live in fear that that will happen to their children when they get older. Yes, yes. And so, uh, you know, what I'm saying really affects all people in terms of respecting the rights of a person living with a disability. They're not vulnerable in themselves, but they can be very vulnerable. They're at risk of abuse and exploitation. I mean, if you take people, say, that are just diagnosed with dementia, some of them have huge capacity to make their own decisions. They have difficulty exercising their decisions. They Mm. can't go to the bank to collect their pension or deal with their money or whatever. But with support and assistance, they can. And and see, organisations too, we step in, we make decisions, we don't allow them to make their choices, we don't allow them to participate uh, and they have the same rights as we have. We have a constitution to say we all have equal rights and yet in practice we don't obey our our constitution and we have no proper legal framework mm. to protect people who are at risk. Yes, we don't have advocates for people with a disability on many state boards for example, do we? Uh, we, we have some but not sufficient but then equally um, you know uh, it's, it's really our own attitudes as people um, that need to change mm. and we need to understand that we have an obligation to support and to accommodate the person living with a disability to the level that they need that support and assistance so all, all our organisations institutions, state bodies uh, you know, banks or whatever. Banks have done quite a, li- li- a lot of work in the recent past to assist people, but we need others, all other organisations, and banks need to do more, and, mm. and, and financial institutions. Lawyers need to n- do more. We're talking about access to justice. People in the courts with a hearing disability, issues like that, yes. really, really important that all people are accommodated. Someone I know with a disability said to me recently, mm-hmm. an adult patrician said to me recently, look, think of it this way, Fiji. You can live in a world built and designed for me quite easily. The reverse is not the case. Yes. So we need to design and build the world for the disability, not for the able. Well, for, for, for everybody, but yeah. it, it must be flexible enough that it accommodates everybody. Yeah. And we talk about accommodating people with a disability and we really talk mostly about the physical environment. But we don't talk about the emotional, the psychological, their needs... Uh, and the support that they need and look at that from an indi- in their own individual point of view as to what support that individual person needs. Mm. So how can those of us... I mean, okay, there's, there's... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's a disabled adult in my life, my son, so I'm very, I'm very cognizant of what's happening and, and, and the, the, the facilities that are, are not there. But, but for those who wouldn't have uh, disability in their lives or close to their lives, how can they help out? Uh, well, in terms of being very aware uh, that they uh, have an obligation. For example, you know, if if somebody, for example, uh, is in a wheelchair and there might be somebody behind them wheeling the chair with them and uh, the person that's interacting that they're going to meet or something normally talks to the person behind the chair wheeling the chair. They don't talk to the individual even though it's about them. Yeah. Does that's he basic. take sugar? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still going on. It's still yeah. going on. Yes. And what does he like to eat or what does he like for this, that or the other, rather than asking the person directly themselves in, in a manner. So if you take somebody with an intellectual disability, then uh, you, you speak to them in a manner. You, you don't say maybe, would you like a cereal for your breakfast? You might say, would you like cornflakes or Rice Krispies or whatever? They know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about, you know, uh, understanding we all have an obligation uh, to uh, interact with one another and respect that other person for, you know, depending yeah. on their ability, disability or yeah. whatever. I'm interested, finally, to come back to what you said, that this, this survey, this Red Sea survey, would seem to indicate that we, we're more aware than we actually are. And that's Indeed. An interesting Indeed, in practice, uh, than the, the, we actually act. Uh, you know, and we have views at times, but uh, do we put them into practice? Do we really uh, understand, um, you know, and as I say, many people would understand in terms of uh, the physical environment for people with disability, but even we see in the papers every day about the wheelchair and the access, you know, and footpaths and everything. Uh, so that is kind of a bit blown out of the water now in terms of accommodating people. Uh, but we don't understand their right to make decisions, their right to make choices, their right to participate uh, in everything that that they're doing and anything about them. Okay, all right. Good to speak with you today on the opinion line. That's Patricia Richard Clark, the chair of Safeguarding Ireland. If you just think about the person with the disability, or someone who said to me recently, uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but you'd know them if I mentioned their name. Look, a house is adapt. House modern house building automatically mm-hmm. takes into account the possible need for a wheelchair. It just does. It's part of building control measures now. It doesn't make any difference to me because I don't use a wheelchair. It makes no difference to me whatsoever. Doors are a little bit wider, lights are a little bit lower on the wall, that kind of thing. But it makes a massive difference to someone who needs a chair or someone who isn't, you know, as mobile as I am if it's not there for them. And that's kind of one element of it. 1850 Getting back to the show. Oh yeah, listen, something to watch on the telly tonight on a completely different and lighter note. Gogglebox is back. Gogglebox Ireland. I, I'm not a fan, as you know, told you a hundred times, I'm not a fan of any kind of reality television but I make an exception for Gogglebox because it is very, very funny. And Gogglebox Ireland is back this evening 
and two of its much-loved characters, uh, Neil and Fergal Tully, are not coming back, which is a pity. They were hilarious. But there's four new people joining the show uh, from Carlo, and they have a vast range of telly interests, GA and soccer being their main one. All right, so watch that. So that should be fun. I, I, it's just one. It, you could throw your head back and laugh at Gogglebox because do you know what it is about Gogglebox? Is you can see yourself in their interactions on screen. You can see the things you do. You can see the things you say. You can hear yourself back in some of it. So that's on tonight. Uh, that's good. And just, by the way, Virgin Media has also uh, announced that the big interview, the Ian Bailey one, which we were talking about yesterday with Ralph Regal, that was watched by nearly half a million people. Now, that's big. What was the one that RTE said? was? Oh, yeah, um, Ken, the new RTE drama the other night. That was watched by around a half a million people. And on Monday, Virgin Media got the half a million, which is a good benchmark. 1857-15996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Cork Opera House is set to welcome two multi-platinum selling Irish troubadours for a double headline show at the venue on Wednesday, October 20th. Paddy Casey and Monday have recorded recorded albums and music that have touched the hearts of many Irish listeners and tickets for the show are on sale now from the Opera House box office. Access all areas. The Spotlight Chamber music series showcase a wide range of repertoire and a wide variety of instrumental formations and each concert of this new series features a work by a contemporary Irish female composer. The first concert in the series takes place on Saturday 18th of September at Tristle Christchurch. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us here at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas Your guide to nightlife on the side On Cork's 96FM Quick one for you Cork 96FM's local hero talent search is underway in association with Hot Press Now listen up if you're a band or a hip-hop act or a rapper or a DJ or a singer-songwriter then you could be featuring live here on Cork's 96FM, if you're the next Shane Cod or Lyra or Pitch at this, then we want to hear from you. And we know there's loads and loads of talent out there. Cork is bursting with talent in all different kinds of music. And as part of Irish Music Month this October on independent radio across the country, we're looking for your music demos right here, right now. Send us an MP3 to Irish Music at 96fm.ie that's all small letters Irish Music at 96fm.ie there's a 5,000 euro overall prize fund plus here's the best bit you'll get your record released and have your music played on independent radio across Ireland it's all part of Irish Music Month proudly supported by Cork's 96fm and Hot Press IBI and the BAI Sound and Vision Fund so get your MP3s into us ASAP Irish music at 96fm.ie. 1850-715-996. I don't know if you've ever heard of the hygiene hypothesis. It's an interesting one. It doesn't, well, it's an observation. And my next guest will tell me whether it's right or wrong. It's an observation 
of mine and has been an observation of many people for many years. But we've an awful lot more, or we seem to have an awful lot more allergies around now among our children. An awful lot more children seem to be allergic to an awful lot more things these days. And there's a, a thing called the hygiene hypothesis that goes along with that, where it says that we live now in a world of antibacterial soap and cleaning chemicals and we're washing and cleaning and sterilizing and all of that. An awful lot more than our parents did or, you know, their parents did. So that in a hyper-clean environment, the, the, the theory is that our immune systems don't build up as strongly as they might otherwise. Hence the possibility of developing allergies and asthma and all that. It is called the, 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 the hygiene hypothesis and there's said to be foreign against it. Professor Jonathan Howrahan, formerly of CUH, now with the Children's Hospital in Temple Street, uh, is an expert in childhood allergies and joins me now because there's been a, a new study done during the pandemic. Professor, good morning to you. Good to have you back on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, now, just before I get into the new research that you've been doing, as I tried to explain there in my own clunky way, the, the hygiene hypothesis, does it stand up? Is it a case that we have more allergies these days? And is it possible that a more hygienic world around our children might have had something to do with it? Uh, it's still a hypothesis, but uh, I think there's no doubt that we have more allergies. We have the asthma rates may have stabilized, but eczema is more common, food allergy is more common, anaphylaxis is more common. And it, part of the hygiene hypothesis is about lack of diversity or lack of engagement with multiple different immune challenges, such as viral infections. Food allergic children have a narrower diet uh, introduction in the first year of life than children who don't develop food allergies. So it's about engaging with your environment in a, as normal a way as possible. And, you know, we've all had the things about, you know, the dummy, you know, the five second rule for your dummy on the floor, always washing your hands before meals and tables are all clean. We're using, as you said, antibacterial wipes more so in the last year or two than we had before even. But over the last 30 years, there's no doubt allergies have increased and with smaller smaller family sizes, etc., and vaccinations, the, the opportunities for babies with their naive immune systems to meet normal viruses in the normal way has substantially decreased. Mm. Now, you've done some research uh, during the, the, the pandemic uh, on, on, on this. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, well, this study was my wife's idea, to be honest, is we, were, we know about the hygiene hypothesis. And we thought that when babies were going to be born into a, into a lockdown, the normal uh, engagements that they would have with uh, family members outside their mom and dad and their siblings would be probably decreased. And they probably would not be going out of the house as much so they wouldn't be in the supermarket with other kids and moving around and they wouldn't be, maybe be going to crash because their mums and their dads were home from work and working at home so we we collected a group of 350 children born between march and may in 2020 so at the height of the lockdown and then as it started to get released they were turning three or four months and we've measured their allergy rates and their other uh, sort of indices of how they've engaged with their environment over the first few months. And um, 
we have shown that very few of them, the most important fact from the study actually, PJ, is that very few of them got COVID in the first six months. So as one of the most vulnerable groups in the population, only four of them, four out of 300 of these babies got uh, coronavirus infection. So lockdown is an effective way of uh, eliminating it. So if we move on from that, we also showed reassuringly everybody was terrified about coming to hospitals because they thought there was a lot of COVID in hospitals, when in fact there was very little COVID in children's hospitals. Uh, And the children were immunized at a higher rate than the normal rate, which is about 94% have completed their immunizations on time. We got that up in, in this group of highly motivated families who were doing their best to protect their children. The rates went up to about 98%. And in regarding the allergy side of things, uh, it was interesting that the breastfeeding rate was much, much higher. Very few babies get exclusively breastfed in Ireland to six months. I think the number is only about 15% who have had no formula milk before six months of age. And the rate went up to over 50%. So... While we were looking for maybe the signal that allergies might increase, and we we haven't got to that yet by six months, we're just starting to measure that now one year, Uh, the increased breastfeeding rate might decrease the allergy rate because we do know that populations who are breastfed have lower rates of allergies. So while we had a good idea that we might be able to prove the hygiene hypothesis, the the home working for months might actually have defeated that. Right, right. We haven't got that yet. We so so I, yeah, I was just about to ask you, like, and obviously this studies like this take take a long time and possibly yeah, longer yeah. than you've even been doing yeah. it already. But like, are, are, are you hoping to get to a point where you'll know whether or not the hygiene hypothesis stands up or falls down? We, uh, I think to prove a hypothesis, <laughs> take years, com- you, yeah. com- complex interactions in the environment, we could maybe produce evidence that supports the hygiene hypothesis. The, the hypothesis is itself unprovable, but it, it, it's attractive to the way that we know our society is constructed and behaves now. So the other factors involved are lack of sunshine and um, uh, immunizations and stuff. So the, the hygiene hypothesis isn't the golden ticket, but it's a very strong part of the of the uh, the panorama that we have about food allergies, asthma, eczema, etc. And we we hope we're following these children to two, so that'll be this time next year. Uh, and we would hope then to maintain the study until they're at least five. We can measure asthma. As far as we know, this is the only such cohort in the world. So we we think we've got a um, a good start on trying to produce this information. It's a fascinating piece of research and one, one we'll no doubt co- come back to over the months and years to come, uh, Professor, and, and thank you for being with us uh, on the Opinion Line today. That's Professor Jonathan Howrahan, uh, paediatrician in Temple Street in Dublin and uh, one of the leading experts in childhood allergies in the country. Uh, thank you for that. 1850-715-996. I did a survey this morning you can find them that take an hour and you can find them that take five minutes. And I am assuming that the one that takes five, takes an hour takes is probably a better more, and more accurate one. But uh, there's a, a thing called attachment surveys. Uh, if you've ever watched that very silly program, How I Met Your Mother, that ran for a whole load of seasons. And it's funny. It is funny. It's harmless fun. It's a hell of a lot better than some of the stuff that has come out of America. It's out these, you know, very lovable but very kind of weird uh, New Yorkers uh, going through different parts of their life and finding and losing love and all this kind of thing. But it's seen by experts as a good study of the various kinds of attachment styles. And there are four kinds of attachment in life. 
There's secure. There's dismissive avoidant. There's anxious preoccupied. And there's fearful avoidant. Four basic styles. And you can try to figure out which style you have. And if you figure it out, it can help you in your life. Louise Carroll is a psychologist, runs Prism Therapy. Louise, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. I did a very brief survey this morning, just after 8 o'clock, one of these 10-minute quizzes that you find online. And it tells me that I'm a secure attachment type person, which oh, is nice. Oh, good for you. <laughs> which, good is, for you. which is nice. <laughs> but so, so what does that mean about me? So attachment is the way in which we describe the dynamic between two people. So you don't, you don't possess attachment as such. Attachment only manifests in relationship to other people. So having a secure attachment indicates um, as you were growing up, your needs are met when they needed to be met. You were attuned to by your parents, by your caregivers. Um, and you, but you were also given space to explore. And here's that's the important part, right? So when you when you had needs, when you needed to be comforted, when you needed to be picked up, when you're upset, when you were hungry, those needs were were met. Yeah. But when you needed to explore and develop your own autonomy, you were also facilitated to do that. So there was a hand on your back helping you to explore. That's secure. Okay, and then go through the other ones for me. Dismissive avoidance. Yeah. What's that? So. And actually, I think it's also important to say, you know, and you did mention this, that there there are multiple ways that people can sort of assess yeah. the kind of attachment style that they might be sort of, uh, that they might have or manifest in relationship. Now, it all began actually back with uh, a strange situation experiment, which was, there were four different, as as you said, there were four different categories. Now, it's it's more secure, there's avoidant, there's anxious and then there's disorganized. So actually, that's the that's the that's the true standard. The rest are sort of you know <laughs> uh, different kind of remixes yes. of that. Yeah. But just to go back to your question, avoidant. So avoidant attachment style sort of manifests out of when the child makes approaches to the parent or to the caregiver and tries to get their needs met and is quite consistently rejected. So the parent is quite consistently unresponsive. The child begins to learn my needs are not important, but also I can't rely on human beings. I can't rely on these people. But right, the the goal of every single child, every child that's born has an instinct for survival. The instinct is to protect from danger, to gain protection from danger. And naturally to do that, you you do it from your caregivers. You need to extract it from your caregivers. But if you have a, a sort of rejecting, dismissive, maybe even aggressive parent, right, or caregiver, the child needs to learn different methods to survive. So what the child will do is find ways to be in the the sort of atmosphere, the sphere, the the kind of the environment of the parent without angering the parent. So they might linger, they might hover, but they will generally not really show that much interest in the caregiver. But that's a safety mechanism right. just to stay in their sphere. Sounds yeah. to me like what you're saying and from the, the stuff I was reading, Louise, that we mm-hmm. as parents very much shape and form the type of relationship mm-hmm. skills that our children will have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that is absolutely accurate, you know, and I think, you know, let's say in different communities um, years ago and in different countries, it takes a village to raise a child, yeah. you know, and in a way that's 
that was a really positive thing because you had influence from several different adults rather than a kind of a small, tiny unit of one parent or two parents. Um, you know, you had the grandparents, you had the extended family and everybody raised the child. So you had, you kind of maximised the yeah. child's ability to feel attuned to. And by the way, all of this comes down to attunement, yeah. the ability of a parent to see into the soul, right, and into the needs of the child, and the child feels seen. The, mm. the biggest need of every human being in this earth is to feel seen. And yes. when you feel seen, you feel like you exist. Yeah. And, you know, I know that might sound dramatic, but it's actually oh. as, as concrete as that. You feel like well, you, you exist. You see, it's when you put you. things bluntly like that, Louise, that people yeah. actually sit up and listen. So, like, what yeah. can parents do? Like, I was... Uh, as I said before, extraordinarily lucky with the parents that, that I had. Mm. I have. My mum is still with us. My mum and dad isn't. But I've been extraordinarily lucky. Mm. Others I know are not mm. so lucky. So how can we mm. how can we all sort of form a community, form that village for people and help them with their relationships, help our children to build great relationships? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a good question. And, you know, I think the first sort of indication, and by the way, attachment theory, again, is really only applied in the context of how are you functioning now as an adult? You know, so there's two ways of looking at it. There's, there's, we need to pay attention to children now, you know, and how they're, they're sort of developing and, and evolving and, and what they're being exposed to as maybe as a parent of children. But then there's also you as an adult. How are you coping in your relationships? Are you encountering the same patterns time and time again? You know, and are you having the same outcomes in relationships time and time again? And those are your indications that, okay, something might be off here. Or you may have certain beliefs and certain behaviours that manifested as as a result of your experiences growing up, you know, that people can't be relied upon or people are inherently dangerous, you know. So I'm actually going to just withdraw and be emotionally sort of numb yeah. to that yeah. which which yeah. can impact the ability to have intimacy in relationships so in, again in answer to your question it's starting to notice those sort of am i having these same patterns time and time again and you know attachment isn't set in stone it is a blueprint for how you behave yeah. but therapy is really effective in unpicking all the beliefs that you have that impact your behaviors and relationships yeah, yeah. like our children will learn how to form couple relationships from us. We're their first teachers. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And in the same way, you know, we spoke about avoidant there, but, you know, the other insecure attachment pattern is anxious or preoccupied, you know, which, which is a child who is exposed to inconsistent parenting. So the parent is sort of attuned one minute, but maybe even intrusive the next you know, or disappears or is distant the next. And, and and that doesn't mean a parent who's busy, by the way. Yeah. You know, this is all about, this is, and most parents are busy now. So it's not about that. It's about when you are with the child, what is the quality of the attunement? Because it, it, it's about quality over quantity. Mm. And if, if you're present with the child, if you're attuning to the child for five minutes, you know, in that space of time, the child feels seen. That's that's what's important. Yeah. It's that quality. Is, is um, someone that, said that one time, the best mm-hmm. gift you can give them is your time. It is, and that's exactly it. But, you know, as well, I think it's, it, one of the things I always find really important, Winnicott, he, he was one of the early sort of theorizers about attachment um he used to say the child needs to feel like they can destroy the parent right that's what the child needs to feel and what he meant by that was <laughs> the child needs to feel that they can actually destroy with the rage that they can be a full expression of their entities that they can go across the full range of emotions but that they're 
still accepted. They're That's still accepted. Something. They're still loved. It's yeah, And you're not yeah. the first person to say that. I, I've often talked about, particularly when you're raising teenagers, mm. you know, mm-hmm. if there's a time sometime after the 13th birthday that they disappear mm. into the bedroom and, and generally yeah, come out yeah. to eat <sighs> and fight. And fight with <laughs> you. And an yeah. amount of that is healthy and normal, is what you say. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and okay, you've got the child or the toddler and that's the kind of full expression. And to be loved even though you've shown your ugly sides, right? Even though you've shown your shadow to be loved, that's the greatest gift you can have. And then into teenagers... And do they push it? Do they push that? I'm, I'm thinking in terms oh, yeah. of listeners that were teenagers, 12, 13, 14-year-olds 14 mm. who are a living nightmare. Are they, mm. are they pushing it to see how far they can push you? Yes. Yeah, so, so any young person will push, will push until they feel resistance. But again, and resistance makes a child feel safe. Resistance and boundaries is what makes children feel safe. And that's really important to say. But, uh, you know, uh, sometimes as parents or as adults, it can feel really difficult to implement those boundaries. But again, it's the way in which that's done. Mm -hmm. You know, a very punitive way of implementing boundaries is not what I'm talking about. You know, you can be accepting of somebody whilst also implementing boundaries. And there's the nuance. And that's the really critical nuance. It's like like I say every time. I mean, there's also telling the difference between a real crisis uh, that the yeah. child is worried about and just rebellion. Like, I really do wish they came with an instruction book, Louise. And they don't. Yeah. No, they don't. And also, you know, there's so many variables that influences a person's development, apart from their own internal workings and tickings, you know. But, but, but environment is important. You know, in fact, you know, it is what shapes us. Of course, we have our own little personality quirks, but our environment does shape us. And that's why, you know, it is important to look at ourselves. It always begins with yourself. You know, mm. if you're an adult, look at yourself. Look at, look at your own attachment style. How did you grow up? What did you learn from your parents about relationships? Because that's what you take into the world. And, and it influences mm. how you view other people. Do you trust them? You know, are you more inclined to be untrustworthy yeah. or, or, or untrusting of other people, to be cynical? All these things are shaped by us and we pass them to our children and they watch us. They okay. always watch us. Certainly yeah. worth looking at. Thank you very much for your time. That's Louise Carroll, prison therapist. She's a psychologist on attachments. We learn and we teach the attachments we form. Bear it in mind. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Holy moly. No, I hadn't seen this. Thank you to Aidan who said it when I was talking about the telly and Gogglebox and Ian Bailey and all these things that have been on the telly and Kin, the new RTE thing he thought I was going to mention this new LG you're listening to this 325 inch telly what? 320 that's a 27 foot telly that's basically a telly as big as the side wall of your house like where are you going to put it? you're going to build a new 
He says, it's a consumer item, by the way. It's not just for trade shows, like some previous ones. Would you buy one if it were affordable, PJ? Where would I put it? Like, I only live in an ordinary house. (laughs) Would I like it? Now, that's a totally different thing. I mean, can you imagine watching the Ryder Cup or the tennis on that? Or the hurling on that? Can you just imagine that? Wow, 27-foot telly on the side of the house. You'd be seen from outer space. Thanks, Aidan. 1850-715-996. See where this issue will come up in the doll today. Um, apart from the Simon Coveney vote of no confidence, which, of course, will go nowhere. Uh, Taoiseach's questions are up as well, and I think this is where uh, Mick Barry intends to bring this up. Students are to join uh, housing activists at the gates of the Dáil today, uh, campaigning over the lack of student accommodation. And you'd have heard Mick there in the news uh, talking about it. Uh, Asha Woodhouse is the president of the Students' Union at UCC and joins me to talk about it too. Asha, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Delighted. How bad is the problem? Like, you've got how many students on campus now and how many places for those who want to live nearby? Um, So we have almost 23,000 students in UCC and, you know, accommodation is an issue every year that comes up for us um, getting calls off students. But there's definitely been a spike this year and it seems to just be a problem in in every city across the country, everywhere where there's students living. Um, now that students are returning to campus everywhere, everyone's just struggling to find somewhere to live and to find somewhere that's affordable to live mm. because a lot of places have just increased to astronomical prices. There's a lot of different kinds of a, a, um, accommodation, isn't there? There's the actual student accommodation centres and then there's apartments and flats and digs and whatever. Yeah. Uh, about how many available places or available rooms are there, shall we say? In total? Yeah. Uh, I I suppose I wouldn't know in total. I do know campus accommodation yeah. owned by UCC is, yeah. is just over a thousand, I think. Right. Um, and I think forty five percent of that is reserved for first years, incoming first years, which okay. is good to have. You know, especially because they've gotten their offers so late, and I've heard of like so many students who. You know, because the points jump so much and stuff, they thought they definitely were going to one place and they moved there and now yeah. they're trying to scramble to go to, you know, another college they've been offered a place in and things like that. Um, so there's rooms there and, you know, the private complexes, there, there's new places after opening recently and it seems like there is rooms there, but they're just really, really expensive. That's Yeah, yeah. So, so while there is space out there, it's it's too expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be, it, w- it would be our, our welfare officer, Quiva, she she gets most calls directly off students and the big issue seems to be people just can't afford the places that are being offered. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said that there's nearly 100 staying in a hostel at the moment. Yeah, I heard that um, in in Shiva's hostel, which is just Up the road ridiculous, here, really. Yeah. You know, um, and it's we we would have some students every year, particularly international students, you know, because they don't know the area. They'd they'd stay in a hostel until they find somewhere, but they're just really struggling to even find somewhere now. Um, so we have heard directly off some students staying in hostels and stuff, and it's just like not no way to live really. You know, you're in a kind of shared room with people. Mm. There's no privacy. There's nowhere to study, especially, you know, with the hybrid model of learning we have at the moment. Um, you know, we might have some in-person lectures and some online. People need 
privacy. You know, everyone deserves to have a, a door to their own room and a roof over their heads. And it's mm. just quite, you know, upsetting, really, to know that we have so many students who are thinking they'll have to, you know, f- might have to stay there for months. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Asha, that this is not a new problem, but it's just one that's been allowed to mount and mount? Yeah, I would say it's not a new problem at all. You know, it's it's been a crisis kind of mounting for years and, and we knew it was coming. Um, I think it has just kind of gotten out of control this year, really. Mm, like when I was going to UCC, and it's a while back, there was about 3,000 students. Now there's 23 thousands mm. like that, that's like that's a colossal number of students and we have yeah. we seem to have nowhere near enough accommodation for those who want to stay at or close to college yeah yeah no it, it definitely is a problem every year and, and especially you know increasing intake of students and, and more and more people wanting to go to college which is a great thing and um, but we know that that's going to happen you know and we need to have um, affordable, suitable, purpose-built accommodation for students. And there is new complexes being built, yeah. but the private ones are just too expensive, firstly. Um, and then there's also, you know, with COVID, there's been delays. There's delays in building all over the country, you know, because people are struggling to get materials and things like that. Um, oh, yeah, there's a huge shortage. of the effects of the... Huge yeah, shortage of, of building pandemic. materials. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, you know... I know we can keep building though and you know that's great but the reality is is that there is rooms lying idle and empty um, just because they're too expensive there's houses lying derelict all over the city you know and it just can't go on you know it's just it's ridiculous to know that there's houses you know that are left derelict around the college area Mm. and I can't find somewhere for students to live Yeah Are people still using digs or has that gone out? Um, there would be some people who are still using digs um, and it does still get advertised. But I think, I suppose, because of COVID, there's maybe been a bit more of a hesitancy about it. Um, yeah. And it also seems to, you know, it used to be a kind of cheaper option for people to do, but it's really costing the same now as um, as getting a private house. Crikey. So how much are people actually paying, like in terms of per week, per month? How much would are people expected to pay? And remember, these are students now. They're not people working in factories or good jobs. Yeah, so I think um, private houses kind of around the college area that students would get together and rent, um, you'd be looking at anywhere between 500 and 700 for a room in that kind of house. Um, digs then, you know, some places are 600 euros um, campus accommodation then is around 600 in UCC and then the private complexes are upwards of a thousand euros a month wow. which is just ridiculous you know like we've heard students are paying nine grand for the for the year yeah that's a lot of money for a family to fork out um just for a year you know on top yeah. of your fees and other living costs that you're paying and I don't know if you heard but um spun out the youth organization yes. Um, they had a survey recently and I found that 80%, 88% of young people in higher education are worried about money and 44% indicated that they stress about money all of the time. And there's no wonder, like, you know, people yeah. are, it's costing 14 grand, you know, just to send send your child to, to college for a year. Yeah. That's, that, you know, that, That's a before you put food in a larder or a book in a bag. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all these hidden costs as well that come with this, you know, along the way. Mm. Um, and it just, you know, it's not viable anymore. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see where it goes. Um, it'll be raised in the doll later on. Um, thank you very much. Asher Woodhouse, uh, president of UCC Students Union, 1850 715 996, talking about accommodation and overcrowding.
See, the trolley watch figures are out. 62 people on trolleys in CUH today. That's the highest figure in the country. Is that Fergal or Fiona that got that number? Can you check the mercy for me, see what's there as well? Um, Because between the two, we could have a serious problem on our hands. Uh, The mercy, the CUH has 62 people on trolleys, highest in the country today. 1850-715-996. Ger is wondering, can you imagine watching the snooker on that 27-foot telly? Yeah, Ger, I can, but I mean, you'd freeze out the back garden. That's the only problem with it. Like. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Focus what you mean, got my eyes on a prize, that's me. Manchester City are the champions. Number one, that's top of the league. The best football league in the world is right here. Firmino with the flick, Salah! Fernandez, he's going to go for goal, oh, what a goal. The Premier League Live, powered by Top Sport. Join me, Trevor Welch, exclusively online at 96fm.ie. Tune in Saturdays as we ramp up the excitement for the day's biggest games. We'll bring you pre-match analysis, live commentary and in-depth interviews with some legends of the sport. The Premier League Live With Now Your sport on your terms Stream only the games that matter to you most With Now Listen every Saturday exclusively online at 96fm.ie Or download the Cork's 96fm app Yeah we got this one earlier on And I had uh, planned to read it And then link it to a story that's in the news today And I hope against hope that we're near the end of that story I get a feeling we might be. But is there any progress on the Tina Satchwell case? The answer to that one is a straightforward no. Ireland has a bad record of women going missing or getting murdered and nothing really happening. I find it extraordinary that such a botch was made out of the Sophie Tosk and Duplantier case and many others. Contrast that to the enthusiasm for arresting Joanna Hayes in the Kerry Babies case. I think the government should take charge of an effort to ensure all these disappearances and murders are correctly handled to a protocol. Well, you raised the Kerry babies, and there was a press release went out from the Garda press office last evening. Uh, goes back to an incident that happened in 1984, which is be- before the time, I guess, of many listeners. But I think it's important that we never forget things like this. In 1984, a man called... Jack Griffin, he was a farmer and he was running along a beach called White Strand near Cahersivine in County Kerry, gorgeous part of the world and he saw what he thought was a doll lying on the rocks it wasn't it was a baby boy the body of a baby boy and the local undertaker was called and he baptised the child and he named him John Baby John the Kerry baby Uh, there was a funeral arranged And there was never any sign of parents for baby John, uh, who had been murdered. And that led to the atrocity now known as the Kerry Babies case and the disgraceful treatment of a family called the Hayes, in particular a young woman called Joanne Hayes, treated appallingly and dragged through the courts and dragged through a tribunal she had nothing to do with this. She had nothing at all to do with baby John. She got an apology, as did her family, a couple of years ago, and only rightly so. But the thing is, 
her family innocent. They were pilloried. But nobody knows to this day what happened to baby John. Three years ago, Gardaí began another murder investigation. And there were house-to-house inquiries. And just off the coast from Cahar, Savine, from White Strand, is the island of Valencia. So they began to inquire on the island of Valencia as well and collect DNA. And yesterday morning, there was a huge move when the body of baby John was exhumed at first light. Now, it was a brief exhumation happened in the graveyard. It's it's always done at first light for some reason, these exhumations. And the little coffin was exhumed, a DNA sample taken in the hospital in Cahar in Trilly rather, and then little John, little baby John was reinterred in the afternoon. But from the day he was found on the beach in 1984, nobody has ever come forward to claim him. No mother ever found, no father ever found. So I'm assuming that they're going to take DNA from him now because they're onto something. Uh, the superintendent, Flor Murphy, he's the super in Killarney, he's covering the investigation. He wouldn't say anything more other than that it, that it happened. So hopefully, hopefully, um, not only will we finally get some handle on what happened to that poor little child, but we might even find out who he was. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be so good if we did? Because it's a mystery that overhangs that whole area of Kerry since 1984, and particularly the horrible treatment, the despicable, disgraceful, misogynistic, hateful treatment of that poor young woman, Joanne Hayes and her family. And still, no one knows what happened to baby John. So here's hoping we will know sometime soon. Yeah, if I sound a bit cross about it, I am, because I remember that story very well and how she was treated, and there were so many holes in it, it didn't bear thinking about 1850-715-996. On a brighter note, we're all told to cycle more, or to at least try to cycle more, and there are cycle lanes now all over the city, loads of them. People, some people complaining about the bollards at the side of them, but look, that's that they're all over the world. Why can't they be here? But this is Cork Cycle Week or Cork Bike Week, put together by a number of different partners, including Cork City Council. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Darren McAdam O'Connell uh, joins me. Um, you're one of the organisers of the week, I take it. You're, you're, a cycling act- you're a cycling activist for many years, of course, Darren. I am indeed. Good morning, PJ. It's lovely to talk to you again. And, and uh, you. hopefully we, we could change to a brighter note. That was a very moving piece you had there. It really brings me back to my childhood. Doesn't it just and, bring uh, us all back? It does indeed. It does I know, indeed. I know. That was my childhood, listening to that on the news every day. And that was that was how we were taught back then to treat women. And, you know, it just, it's shocking. Yeah, you're right. You know? You're right. And thank you for thank you for mentioning that. Thank you very much. Yeah. So Bike Week We've is... We've got to move them, on now to something brighter. Absolutely. Yeah. There must be about... Is it about 70 events? Huge list of events on for the week. 177. Wow. <laughs> but that that's including now events in schools. So there's 177 years ago to even if it was physically possible. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm coordinated with the Transport and Mobility Forum together with the Cork Environmental Forum. I'm involved with it as well. Um, there's 19 we're organising, but that, that's only a drop in the ocean of the 177 throughout Cork City and County. So yeah. Cork City, County, 
Cork City Council and Cork County Council and coordinated by the Sports Partnership out in Balancholic uh, for the Cork events. They take break nationwide, of course. We appear to do it just that little bit better in Cork. When I first spoke to you about cycling, we didn't have half as many cycle lanes or provisions for cyclists as, as we do have now. We've made great strides over the years. Oh, enormous, enormous strides. You know, um, it's kind of like everything that I was, you know, would seem a bit extreme for calling for 15 years ago is is, is, is taken for granted today. You know, um, we've moved on um, hugely and now people are, are, you know, looking to move on the next bit. You know, we really need to, to realise that, you know, it's it's just not sustainable to be driving around everywhere. And it's not even that it's just sustainable because people don't make choices because you know, it's more sustainable. It's just like, why would you spend your day participating in a traffic jam when you could be flying by with the wind in your hair? Yeah. It's just more fun and it's easier to cycle. And people are realising that the roads are less style. They're still not as good as they should be. But the difference, like 15 years ago, um, you know, I did my, did I studied in UCC, went away to do my PhD, came back, started working work. And roads were white hostile, and they're not today. It's still not perfect, but it's it's just so pleasant to be on the roads today compared to what it used to be. At the at the point we're at, um, are we are we there yet? Where when a new road is being planned and drawn up by the architects and the engineers, do do we yet take provision for a cycle lane on that road when we're planning them? Absolutely, that, that cycling will be considered. But you must realise that the architects and the engineers that are drawing them up were, were educated quite often in the height of, of um, our dominated thinking. And the provisions that, that are put in place will be there today, but they're not always perfect. Yeah. And sometimes that, that's what we have to do is we have to consult on these things and, and, and you know input into this process and go, I know you've put in a lane here, but you haven't really thought about it. This is this is driver thinks, thinks a cyclist what, what a motorcyclist actually wants. We're getting there, but it is a slow process and nothing happens instantly. If I if I had expected everything just to change instantly and it would be perfect straight off, I've given up years ago, we never gotten as far as we are now. Yeah, yeah. We, we do have a huge provision for cyclists. Now there's a map has been published as part of Cork Bike Week and I know you want to tell us about that because there's great credit due to the there two is indeed. together. There is indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prasanna Mishwami has come up with uh, the latest version, I suppose, uh, because, you know, here with the TMF, we put together versions quite quite a while, not, not that long ago, in fact. But the great thing is that they go out of date very quickly because things are improving so fast. So there's a really nice visual... Uh, I have a feeling that line isn't going to hold up for us. We might try and get him back on the telephone, Fiona. I don't think that WhatsApp is going to hold... Uh, see what we can do. I'll take a commercial break and come back. I want to talk about this map uh, that that's out there of all the various cycling facilities and cycling lanes around town. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Okay, we've got uh, Darren McAdam O'Connell back on a regular phone line. Darren, sorry about that. Sometimes it no just... Problem. It, it, it just sits down. Just on that map, uh, where can we get it? Who's put it together? Um, it, it's the, the Torque Cycle campaign that put it together. We can thank Prasanna Ramchrami, who did a lot of the work on that. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the publication details are of it yet or where we can get it. It's available online anyway. I presume there will be paper copies at some stage. I know I'm still giving out our previous version of the map, which is now out of date, which is great because things are improving so fast. Um, because we had the Transport Mobility Forum did a previous version of that map, and it's now been updated with all the, the wonderful new additions we have. And where can it be found? Um, we, you can find it online with the Cork, Cork Cycling Campaign. Okay, very good. We had a caller with a, a, a question for you. When the council made the cycle lanes, they never made the provision for the trucks that sweep the streets, which means a lot of streets are remaining uncleaned. It's going to be a problem do you, do you know if there's a, a solution to that? or There is work? indeed. They, they were one ahead of this. This is something that had, that, that had occurred to us as well. And I'm delighted to say that the City Council is now in possession of two brand new cycle lane sweeper trucks specifically designed for that okay. to do this. And I had an email yesterday asking me where should they begin? Because obviously when they've just got them, they don't have the institutional knowledge of where needs swept when. So they, they ask, they're asking cyclists to let them know where, where needs swept. As soon as I'm off the line here, I'll be replying and letting them know where I've spotted leads um, in the last couple of days. Great. So, so they're specifically purchased to get into the cycle lanes and do the job in there? Yeah. Now, I'm assuming that they can also be used where footpaths needed and all of that because they'll be narrower and lighter and suitable for, for, for places that the big machines can't reach. Very good. Because, you know, pedestrians and cyclists as well deserve streets that are slip, you know, are free from slip hazards and that, okay. just as much as motorists. Good, good to be marking uh, Cork Bike Week with some good news like that. Thank you very much, Dr. Darren McAdam O'Connell. Uh, Cork Bike Week, all the information is available at corksports.ie or just Google Cork Bike Week and it'll all come up. There are hundreds of events and that map of where all the cycling facilities are is well worth looking for. 1850 715 Let's have a listen. To I, I, I watched a clip of this the other night. I have 101 things to watch on the telly and I have a load of stuff to read for a, a culture night event that I'm doing on Friday. So I did manage to watch about 15 minutes of this and it's fun. Ultimate Hell Week lifts the veil on Ireland's Special Forces Unit by putting 18 well-known civilian recruits through the key stages of its highly classified selection process. We'll be in your soul within the next few hours. An elite team of ex-Special Forces soldiers will push them to their physical and mental limits. They're not jumping out. Get it in the board, sir! Does anybody want to go home? With each recruit representing a charity of their choice, the stakes are high. The longer they last, the more they will raise for their worthy cause. It will be the ultimate test of strength, character, and resilience. Welcome to hell. 
Peter Stringer, you'd have met a few fair-sized beasts on a rugby pitch that'll put you put you through your paces. Have you have you ever been anything through anything like this on a pitch? I tell you what, nothing would have prepared me for meeting those uh, those DS crew. I tell you, it was something else. The oh, the attack on all your senses from minute one. That clip is just giving me. The cold sweats and shivers now, just hearing it again, it brings me back, I tell you. But it was it was incredible. It was something else. I tell you, I've never been through anything like that. Um, it really was uh, relentless. Yeah. Describe what it was like. I mean, how quickly were you immersed in it all? Straight away. So we were we were down in Cork. Look, obviously it was based, um, it was down in Camden Fort and Cross and We were out in the boats. We were down in kind of Roberts Cove, straight walking straight into the water at five in the morning. And you're, you're, you know, you're around the harbour, you're told to jump out of the boat, you know, there's dogs barking in your faces, you're told to do fitness sessions, you're told to, to strip down to your boxer shorts and you're absolutely shivering. And it's just, honestly, it's relentless. You know, 24 hours, it's um, very little sleep, very little food. Um, and, and what you see on the TV is, oh, it's it, it's what you get. There's no kind of watered down version for TV or anything. This is just, this is so intense from minute one. Um, a complete shock and um, as much training as you do to prepare for it it's the mental side of it really that is so so tough in How terms of How long were you preparing like, for it? Um, well it was due to happen back in November and then obviously with, with COVID everything was put back so you were you never really knew when it was going to gonna happen and if it was going to happen so you got a, we got three weeks before it was actually, you know, recorded back in May. So we had that kind of that time to to really prepare for it. And like I said, there were things there that you just, you know, the fittest and strongest person, you know, it mightn't necessarily be that side of things that might get you. You know, it could be a, a claustrophobia test that might get someone where you think, oh, this guy's going to pass it because he's he's so fit and strong. And I've looked at guys in the past and the first couple of seasons and I thought the same. And all of a sudden that they're gone off the show because that mental side of it they just they ha- they face that fear and they can't go through with something so it's it's incredibly challenging did you have any moment at all where you kind of thought oh god what have i set myself up for here <laughs> I did. I, as, as soon as I got on that boat, I was thinking to myself in the, in the cold water, I said, what have I done? Because, look, it's it's something that, um, you know, like you said, you can prepare from the, the fitness aspect and whatever. But these guys shouting in your face constantly. And, mm. you know, there's a clip there from, from episode one in terms of I was put in charge of the group and I was completely flustered trying to organize 17 other people from the get-go. And it just was an absolute nightmare because... They're just they're barking these orders at you, and they want you under pressure. They want you to be able to cope with it, um, and it really was. And in, in terms of um, things I've been through, it certainly has been one of the toughest. Yeah, there's an amount of bad language involved. Is is it uncomfortable to to listen to that? Um, it is, I suppose. Like I, there are, there are certainly some rugby coaches I've been been working well, with yes, in the past that, that. that have used have used some of, but it's it it is a little bit. It's it's so in your face. Look, mm. this is this is the training. This the army ranger wing guys. This is what they go through, and and they're they're in a situation. They're put in charge. It's you. You're not even aware of any cameras around you or any production crew. As soon as you get on that. That that uh, that peer, you're in control. They're in control of what you do. It's nothing to do with TV. And yeah, this the film is, they is put off you the distance, isn't it? It's like there's not a kind of set up film. It's it's constant. It's constant, and there's no 
caught, let's do this again. We weren't even aware. So at the end of the time that you're in there, it's, you know, you're completely oblivious that it's a TV show. So these guys put you through the training that they go through. So it's, it's, it's life or death situation for them in their world. And they want to try and bring you into that. And that's, mm. you know, that's, that's what the physically and mentally challenging part is. I think it gives you a whole new realization, Peter. And particularly we had, I said this to Anna Kaplis last week, that like we, we, the Army Ranger Wing came into the headlines recently with the, the trip to Afghanistan and, and helping people get out of there. I think mm, the respect yeah. we have for the best of the best in our defense forces, you, you realize just, just, just what they go through to be as good as they are. Oh, incredible. And, and I suppose when, when before I even was aware of, of the work they did and you know, you hear about the SAS and you hear about the Navy SEALs and, and you think these guys are the, are the elite and that, that you think, oh, how can the Irish be on, the, on a par? But these guys, these guys set the standard of of everything that is done in terms of the training. It's the same kind of training schedules that they go through, the same quality. They have, they're dealing with their own lives and other people's lives that they have to protect. So these guys, you have the utmost respect of, for what they do. And I think that's one of the reasons why the show worked, that we bought into it you know, we, we fully respected their world and, and to go along with it, that you just, you, you do what they say, you nod your head, you shake your head, you do, do what it takes to get through this. And look, it, it was unbelievably challenging, but utmost respect to these guys. They are phenomenal in what they do and the work they do around the world. Am I allowed to ask you how you did? You can ask, but I'm not allowed to say how I did, unfortunately. <laughs> Shall I try anyway, Peter? Um, you know yeah, I know, I know. But look, I tell you what, look, it's 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 run over six weeks and I, we haven't seen the up and coming episodes. We saw the first episode as a group and uh, I was just, it, I was blown away. But in talking to the producers, they say the episodes just get better and better in terms of what we did uh, in terms of tasks, the, mm. the production. Um, I'm, you know, I'm excited to, to sit down tonight and, 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 and to watch myself for, for however long I'm going to be watching Is it hard to watch show. yourself on the telly? Ah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable. I particularly that first episode where I was put in charge, and I couldn't get anything right. I suppose I was the one who was in charge of everyone. I I, I felt I had to kind of row in and kind of do all the kind of work as well. But they didn't want that from me. They wanted me to stand back and delegate a lot more. And it just was out of my nature to to do something like that. But that was extremely tough watching that first episode. But I'll I'll, I'll watch tonight with with you know. With eyes open t- tonight. Think, thinking back to rugby history, you're wondering, I, I could do with Ronan around here to help me with this. <laughs> <laughs> nah, no, he, he he wouldn't have been much use in there. Now I tell you, <laughs> Peter, good to catch up. It's been a while since we spoke. Cheers, cheers, man. That's Peter Peter Stringer, the great Peter Stringer, a part of Ultimate Hell Week, episode two on tonight. Uh, there's like there's there's nothing of him there. <laughs> but he makes a huge impact in this show. Uh, it's fun, actually. I must watch the rest of it now later on. And remember if I read this to you earlier on, so I will again anyway. If you have any old mattresses hanging around, we have an awful problem with people throwing mattresses into ditches and over gates. You'll find them anywhere. And as part of an anti-dumping initiative, you can drop them off at Tremor Valley Car Park in Ballinlock. Just for a fiver on today, Wednesday. All right, Tremor Valley Car Park. That's Tremor Valley Park, the car park there, I take it. Uh, for just a fiver. Normally, I think they charge a little bit more for a mattress, but just single, they'll just tie it up on top of the car and take it, because there are mattresses in over ditches everywhere. So they'll just take, they'll take it off today for a fiver at Tremor Valley Park. 
And on the whole uh, reunion, or uh, return of the Doyle and uh, Simon Coveney motion of no confidence, which will be turned around on its head by a government motion of confidence, which he will win, and that might all go away, and then again it might not. PJ, once again, Simon Coveney will give the Irish people the two fingers. After all, Fine Gael are still really running the country. If Fianna Fáil don't make a stance now and remove Micheál Martin as leader, they'll be destroyed in the next election. Oh God, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Do we really want to draw that on ourselves right now? Oh. 1850-715-996. Much more pleasant things than the thoughts of elections. Trevor Welsh has Premier League live on Saturday from midday on uh, 96fm.ie and of course on the app and it's all powered by TalkSport live coverage of Wolves against Brentford at 12.30 this Saturday Liverpool versus Crystal Palace then at 3 o'clock and Aston Villa v Everton at 5.30 and all the post-match analysis with Trevor and the team it's the Premier League live online with now stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership and listen Saturday on the Cork's 96fm app or indeed go to 96fm.ie We're talking about Cycling Week, Bike Week with Darren a little earlier on and it, I don't know whether it's an official part of Bike Week but on Saturday the 18th of September 2021 there's a super event called the Great Railway Cycle This has been running for a few years now and it's organised by uh, the Lions Club uh, the, uh, and it's put together by Mark Gain Mark, good morning to you Good morning, PJ. How are you today? Good to, good, to, good to talk to you. It's been a while. This has been running for a few years now, and it's a very successful it's, event. It's been running since 1990. This is our 31st year. Wow. Um, it was started by our great colleague, James O'Sullivan, mm-hmm. uh, who passed away some years ago. Um, it's, it's one of the cycle events in this part of the country. Its beneficiary is Mary Maud Hospice. Uh, we've been with them from the very, very start and the youth centre in Carrigaline. Um I suppose really Marymount is close to everybody's heart, and um, this event has raised in excess of €700,000 mm-hmm. since it started, uh, which has been a great achievement for the, the Lions Club and, and its supporters. Mm-hmm. Formerly known, I guess we should tell it, Mark, formerly known as the, the Carrigaline Cycle Classic. Correct. Um, originally, we used to do weekend trips as in Killarney and can bear, and uh, but more recently we have uh, restructured the event. So it's it we have three routes: we have a 30k route, a 70k route, and a 100km route. Leaving the youth centre in Carrigaline uh, next Saturday. Registrations at 9am, and we'll be departing at 9:30am uh, in groups of 10, and and we will be completing the route, uh, and ha- hope to have them back in Carrigaline safely by mid. Mid morning. Mm. What is the route? So, the route with the 30k route is, is from Carrigaline to Ballygarvan, uh, out via Five Mile Bridge, and then we come back via the old road uh, in Ballahasic back into Carrigaline. And the 70k route continues on into Bandon, and then it goes into beyond Bandon in Gagan, uh, then back into Crossbury and back the old road again. So, uh, and the 100k one goes a bit further again. So, effectively, it's the old railway. Uh, the route of the old West Cork West railway, yeah. Yeah, and um, one get details, in, uh, log on to www.thegreatrailwaycycle.com. Um, 
or you can register in the morning at the youth centre uh, at, at 9am. At okay. So, again, I, our sponsor this year, as in previous years, is Victoria Cross Cycles, yeah. John O'Connor. Yeah. Uh, we have great supporters with Pepsi uh, in Carrie Lane, and uh, they've been with us for a long time. So, I, I think PJ, you cycled yourself once or twice, uh, I believe. I, I did. I did the very low, the very smallest part. And you, you mentioned our dear departed friend uh, James O'Sullivan. He, he and I once did part of it on a tandem. Tandem. Uh, and I wasn't. Is. I wasn't right for a while, but it was worth the effort. <laughs> I would say so. But um, sure, maybe you might get on the saddle again sometime, PJ. Maybe sometime. But I might not do it this yeah. year. I'm not fit enough. But okay. we might do it next year. Mark. Good, good luck with it, and I know it's very much. And get uh, gathers uh, Saturday morning. Thegreatrailwaycycle.com is the website, and like you said, this has been going on since. Uh, since like you said, it it was the old Carrigline Cycling Classic, which I was very close to for many many years. Uh, but it's it's the new event now, based uh, that has come out of that. And I wish you well with everything on Saturday, Mark. If you want more information, if you want to register, it's www.thegreatrailwaycycle.com. Starts Carrigline Saturday morning. On the 18th of September in aid of Marymount Hospice and the Carrigaline Lions Youth Centre. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Fiona was just remembering there a time when I did the world naked bike ride around Cork. Don't be getting any notions now just because you have... The- <laughs> it's a new job, Fiona. Don't be getting any notions of getting me. A couple of things. We started this morning talking about creches and a terrible shortage of places and a shortage of staff and a crisis in the sector. Tom says, Elaine wonders why the government are not listening. This is Elaine from the Providers Association. They're listening to each other and creating their own reality at think tanks. They'd do better to listen to radio shows like yours. When two people are working, they probably need two cars to get to work Society sends out a message that you need to get educated and build a career, not just punch into a factory. So you get more training, you work late. We were put in this position and we need a solution. Wake up government, which is an interesting way of putting it. Right, that's it. The programme edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. We'll see you tomorrow, just after nine.